My name is Jamie Duncan, and I'm a researcher at the University of Winnipeg Center for Access to Information and Justice, as well as an affiliate of the Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto uh, Center for Ethics. Today, it is my great pleasure to, uh, to be in conversation with Alexander McClelland and Alex Luscombe. Alexander McClelland is a socio-legal researcher and a Banting postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ottawa's Department of Criminology. His research focuses on the intersections of life, law, and disease, as they relate to issues of criminalization, sexual autonomy, surveillance, drug liberation, and the construction of knowledge on HIV. Alex Luscombe is a PhD student at the University of Toronto's Centre for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies. His research focuses on issues of policing, economic crime, and access to criminal justice data. He's also a researcher at the Centre for Access to Information and Justice at the University of Winnipeg. Today, we're here to talk about their Policing the Pandemic project. Their website, policingthepandemic.ca, details how the, how the Policing the Pandemic mapping project was launched on April 4th, 2020 to track and visualize expansions of police power in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the unequal patterns of enforcement that may arise as a result. The project aims to bring light to COVID-19 related patterns of police intervention to help understand who's being targeted, what justifications are being used by police and how marginalized communities are being impacted. So just to, just to get started, could you uh, tell me a bit about how this all, all started? Sure, Th thanks for that introduction, Jamie, and thanks for the Center for Ethics for having us. Um, our project is grounded in the outcomes of research on the criminalization of HIV in Canada and the harmful and unjust and un unequal patterns of enforcement which emerge in that context, which are highly racialized, highly gendered, and highly classed. Canada is a leading country in the world for mobilizing police in the criminal justice system to address HIV, and that has only harmed our collective health. So our project, the Policing the, Ma Policing the Pandemic Mapping Project, was started out of concern that this would only reproduce itself in a new way with COVID. Uh, we began documenting and tracking all forms of enforcement of COVID to help understand what was happening on the ground, um, to help put into question the practice of enforcing a pandemic, to help scrutinize the idea of policing as a legitimate response in this context, um, so that we'd be well positioned to call attention to harms that would inevitably be result from the process. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Jamie, and for uh, Marcus for, for having us on here. Um, and just to, to add to that, what Alex and I basically did um, for this project was, um, without getting into kind of too many of the technical details, we basically built uh, an online platform, which is uh, policingthepandemic.ca. Uh, and what it, how it works is that we basically populate an Excel file uh, with a, a variety of information from across the country, like um, kind of where a reported enforcement action related to COVID happened, uh, how much a person was fined, uh, the known demographic characteristics of the person and so on. And I should say we're at the moment, just because it's the only data uh, available, we're, we're mostly getting that from newspaper articles, police press releases, and the occasional uh, social media posts at the moment. Um, but what we do with it then is we uh, populate this Excel file and we represent this information uh, in an interactive uh, map that's on the website, as well as a searchable um, database um, that people can explore and uh, use freely for their own kind of uh, journalistic, academic, uh, other purposes. So um, just looking at it uh, before this, um, so far since we launched it about two months ago, we've had uh, over 20,000 um, people visit the website from about 50 different countries uh, and are finding um, new reports and making use of the project and the data uh, that we put on it uh, almost every day, uh, which is definitely far more than we um, could have hoped for when we first uh, launched it. 
Awesome, thanks. So the project and, and your white paper uh, associated with it used the term countermapping. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what, what this means. Sure. Um, so, so the term, the concept of countermapping, um, broadly speaking, it kind of refers to uh, basically efforts to uh, map against uh, dominant power structures in the name of some larger goal. So you're basically treating uh, mapping and data access as a kind of explicitly um, political project. And so it's a term that was originally coined uh, about 25 years ago uh, by Nancy Peluso, an American environmental sciences professor. And she wrote an article called uh, Whose Woods Are These? Uh, where she basically looked at uh, the issue of land ownership in the forests of uh, Kalimantan, Indonesia, and found you know, very clear differences between the forest maps uh, drawn by the government and timber industry and those drawn by local uh, indigenous people. And so basically what she argued was that the official maps uh, that were drawn by the government timber industry uh, represented lands in terms of uh, logging and mineral exploration potential while indigenous people's maps, which she um, coined to the, the concept of uh, counter maps referring to these uh, told stories of uh, generations of use about customs uh, and about um, disputes among uh, different tribes. So since then, you know, that was 1995, um, the term counter mapping has kind of taken on a much you know, wider range of meaning and application across the, the social sciences, especially. So for indigenous people, I should say, um, throughout the world, countermapping remains a vital tool for challenging dominant representations of history and for uh, building political identity, especially in, in Canada. Uh, but we're now also beginning to see uh, other kinds of countermapping projects pop up throughout the world. Um, so some kind of well-known examples that I'll mention would be like the uh, anti-eviction mapping project in San Francisco. Uh, where just basically a data visualization storytelling project that um, documents instances in, uh, instances of uh, housing dispossession, dispossession and resistance gentrification. Uh, another one is the uh, mapping uh, white collar crime risk zones project. And a really famous one that many criminologists are especially familiar with now is the mapping police violence project, which uh, collects, publishes and analyzes data on um, police killings across the United States. So. You know, we were really influenced by um, projects like these, which we had uh, studied before we launched this. Uh, and what our project aims to do is basically make uh, certain police interventions, in this case, any known enforcement action related to COVID-19 across the country, uh, visible in real time using the best data that we have available. And like the uh, Mapping Police Violence Project, we're basically doing this because um, these data don't otherwise exist in any kind of central repository. Uh, and that, you know, in turn limits the kinds of analyses and area trends and trends over time and so on that we can do, which are of course extremely important for uh, seeking accountability and informing policy. Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, I think for me, the way I first understood the pandemic was visually, like through global maps, like such as the John Hopkins website. And um, our map has been growing each week in a similar way, although very different. Um, and I think we wanted to intervene in how the pandemic was visually understood um, to help people understand the dual harms that are at play here. So the harm of the virus itself, but also the harm of responding to the virus with ineffective approaches that only add to the crisis such as enforcement. And I think one of the things that emerges for us out of a visual representation of the map, which has been really helpful is we're really where we're really quickly able to understand how enforcement was happening at intensified levels in different places, which helped bring scrutiny to it. So in places like Nova Scotia, 
in Quebec and Ontario, uh, which had intensified levels of enforcement compared to other places, we could question why is that happening um, in those places when it isn't happening in places like Winnipeg or Vancouver or COVID specific enforcements weren't happening in Winnipeg and Vancouver, not to let the police off the hook, because in those places, there's been lots of police violence and harassment that's manifested in other ways, but it hasn't been explicitly COVID related. And so the visual representation of the map has helped us to understand that. Hmm, that that's really interesting. Um, and one of the other things that you that you do with the map is you you break it down according <clears throat> to various types of legislation. So could, could you explain a little bit more why, why you think it's important to make those distinctions? Sure, yeah, we uh, are mobilizing an interlegal approach um, or an interlegality approach to our map. And so our map tracks a range of enforcement measures which are a result of very different types of legislation that take place across a range of different jurisdictions from federal, provincial to municipal. Um, and the concept of interlegality allows us to understand the ongoing productive interaction and crossover between these heterogeneous legal systems. Um, the concept was developed to account for the integrated outcomes of varied in, uh, legal systems operating at different scales and within different jurisdictions, um, using a, diff a bunch of different governing logics and rationalities, sometimes that are complementary or contradictory. So we, we have emergency legislation and public health legislation. Um, and so using interlegality, we can kind of have a comprehensive understanding of these laws outside of one individual law on its own. So our project um, is tracking, for example, provincial emergency legislation, such as Ontario's Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. Uh, we also track provincial public health legislation, such as Quebec's Public Health Act. We're also looking at the Federal Criminal Code and the Federal Quarantine Act. The Quarantine Act was just recently used. In the past few weeks, there's been four charges laid under the Quarantine Act. And we also are looking at municipal bylaws in Brampton, for example, has its own municipal bylaw that they're enforcing. Um, and so um, a majority of the enforcements that we've seen to date have been failure to distance or comply with minimal gathering rules. And so each of these laws are different and has different sanctions in different places. So in Quebec, it's around a $1,500 fine that people will receive. In Ontario, it's $880. In Saskatoon, it's $2,000. Outside of physical distancing measures, um, the next most frequent source of enforcement action is continuing to operate a business deemed non-essential. So these businesses have been hair salons, pawn shops, uh, nail salons, bars, a hookah lounge was closed, a massage parlor was closed. Um, we've also seen the criminal law being used where individuals are facing uh, criminal charges for allegedly coughing or spitting, uh, most often at police officers and the threat of COVID transmission is taking place. Uh, the offense in these cases is either assaulting a police officer or aggravated assault or um, uttering threats. Um, there's also been reports of individuals charged with COVID-related fraud charges um, under the criminal code. So someone in Toronto was charged with fraud under 5,000 for selling fake COVID testing kits. Another person was charged in Ontario for fraud under 5,000 for allegedly using a fake doctor's note stating that they had COVID to avoid coming to work. Also in many, many indigenous communities, um, in reserved communities across Canada, there's been curfews imposed. Um, and so in Manitoba, there was one man who, who was alleged to have violated curfew leaving the reserve after 10 p.m. and he was charged by the Manitoba First Nations Police Service 
Um, and so using the concept of interlegality helps us to understand all of these varied forms of legislation um, and contend with all of the various actions um, and the ongoing uh, interaction and productive crossover between all of these various jurisdictions and heterogeneous laws. So we can kind of have a comprehensive picture, a comprehensive and integrated picture of the enforcement and the outcomes that result. Awesome, thanks. Uh, like sort of sort of related to all of these different enforcement actions, I'm often I often see uh, people refer to how how sort of evidence supports the fact that enforcement measures like those that your project documents are are ineffective, and and you you've also sort of mentioned it in this presentation. Well, I've got like a general sense of what this evidence is. Would you mind sort of filling this out with a, a more nuanced take on why you believe these enforcement uh, measures are are not effective? Sure. So, I mean, when, when we're talking, I guess to clarify one thing, when we're talking about enforcement measures in Canada, we're really talking about um, monetary fines. So, I mean, this has basically been the um, major tool that police have been using to try to enforce physical distancing and other emergency orders, especially in Quebec, uh, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, where most of these uh, enforcement actions have taken place. And so with that in mind, um, the first kind of question we have to ask is, um, does fining uh, work as a means of altering um, people's behavior, deterring them from doing uh, X, in this case, um, standing too close to someone, um, because either they or someone they know or uh, read about in the news has received some um, $1,500 fine. Now, we don't have these kinds of uh, global public health crises very often, fortunately, uh, which also means there isn't some uh, highly developed criminological literature on fines as a means of deterring people for failing to physical distance, uh, et cetera. In fact, it's never been um, studied at all from what we can tell, uh, which leads us to the next question. Um, does fining work uh, as a means of social control in other contexts, like speeding, jaywalking, uh, or um, drinking in public? And from what uh, Alex and I have found uh, is that you know even in these uh, other contexts where fines have been used um, for a very long time, uh, the evidence is not really that clear. Uh, in fact, a lot of um, really high caliber research on speeding, um, drinking and driving especially has found that fines actually have uh, little to no deterrent effect on people's behavior, even as the size of the fine actually uh, goes up. Uh, so that would be the first point that we'd make and I'll uh, pass it on to uh, Alex to make some more. Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, I think we, we don't know um, if fines work, but we do know that fines cause harm. And so slapping a large fine on a homeless person who has no choice but to live their life in public without access to privacy and safety, um, uh, which police have already done in Montreal, Toronto, and Hamilton, that's only gonna further cause harm. Imposing hefty fines on black and indigenous people um, or members of other groups who've been made oppressed or who've been made marginalized in Canada is only gonna reinforce division. It's only gonna reinforce mistrust and it's only gonna lead to abuse. And so also the people who had the hardest or who have will have the hardest time practicing physical distancing um, or gathering um, guidelines uh, lack, often lack financial means. They may have mental health, language, or coherent or ability issue, coherence or ability issues, um, where enforcement and police isn't going to be the, the thing that we need. Um, others who work in the gig economy or on the front lines of the crisis as delivery workers, as checkout people, as people who work in kitchens, as grocery workers, 
who are namely poor and working class people of color, these people have no choice but to be out in the world and face the dual onslaught of the crisis of the pandemic and the, the onslaught of enforcement. Um, so meaning that they'll be on, at a heightened risk for COVID and at a heightened risk for facing this new ramp up of police with uh, police or bylaw officers, depending on where you are. So those are a few of my thoughts as to why uh, fining isn't gonna do anything, any, anything good for us. I'll, I'll just add uh, kind of one other uh, reason that Alex and I have been um, kind of calling these in enforcement measures into question is that uh, there are in fact many places even in Canada and outside of Canada, but in Canada where law enforcement and fining has hardly been used at all. And that's been one of the um, things that we've been able to reveal as a result of, of doing our project and tracking these things over time. So British Columbia, it is an example. Um, basically police and bylaw officers in BC have not actually given out a single uh, fine compared to you know other places like Montreal where they've given out thousands. Uh, and yet, you know, BC was one of the first provinces to actually uh, flatten their curve. You know, we can also look the other direction. We can look at um, countries where fines and jail time for multiple alleged offenses has been taken to the absolute extreme. Um, for example, France. Um, there, and I'm not sure how this is possible, but they have given out over a million, uh, nearly a million fines uh, since the pandemic began. And they've jailed, I think, over 3,000 people. Um, for uh, receiving multiple fines. But you know, in countries like France and in Spain, which have followed a very similar model uh, of extreme fining and enforcement, uh, we haven't actually seen them get a better grip uh, on the spread of the virus. So I think um, it's definitely not some simple uh, linear thing where uh, fining and enforcement uh, helps you control the problem. So it, it now seems like uh, some cities in Canada are turning away from enforcement. So for example, the city of Toronto has adopted a stance of, of educating the public by issuing far more warnings than, than fines. Um, do you think that this is sufficient? Sure, I think that's a really hard question. And I certainly, um, I'm not gonna pretend like I have the answers, um, but you know, I don't think it's enough to just uh, focus on education if that just means um, telling people that they shouldn't stand too close to one another or shouldn't uh, congregate in groups of larger than five. I mean, I think with a focus on education by police and bylaw officers also needs to come uh, a more well thought out messaging campaign on behalf of our governments. Uh, and in my view, uh, definitely a fundamental reorganization of city spaces uh, if we're going to kind of have any long, uh, any shot at. Um, altering our behavior to slow the spread of the virus long-term. Uh, my guess is that you know, education is gonna be pretty ineffective if uh, what we're trying to teach people is just um, don't do that because the law says not to. I think people need to understand um, why they should take physical distancing seriously. Uh, they need to understand uh, certain uh, risks of uh, specific behaviors versus others. Uh, they need to have a clear kind of as, you know, unambiguous as possible guidelines uh, about how they should navigate and use public space. And ultimately, I think we do need to work a lot harder to uh, foster a sense of togetherness uh, in Canada, uh, which, you know, things like uh, the snitch lines popping up all over Ontario, uh, of course, directly undermine. Uh, so I would say that, you know, education is only a small part of this. Uh, the rest would fall to our governments, doctors, epidemiologists, um, other uh, experts to come up with a clear overarching strategy and plan that they communicate to people, uh, which they have not yet 
to do, at least in uh, Ontario and Quebec. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, many places made appeals to use the police as a last resort in this crisis. Like, for example, in Nova Scotia, the medical officer of health said, we'll use police as the last resort. And they were actually then one of the first provinces to use police. Um, um, so I don't know what the term of a last resort would be, but for me, it's not about if or when we use the police. It's that the police are fundamentally the wrong institution to mobilize at all. And so many of these emergency laws that we've seen, um, they also allow for jail time um, under public health acts or emergency acts. Um, if, if fines aren't paid or if there are repeated fines. So for example, we saw this uh, or seen this, the threat of this in the Cree community in Shisabi in Northern Quebec, uh, where 15 indigenous people were issued tickets of $1,000 for allegedly disobeying uh, physical distancing rules. And a multi multiple people then received second tickets just for a few days after the first violation um, with a threat of jail for the third violation. And I think this is a particularly troubling thing and it reveals how quickly uh, public health coercion and a car carceral logic unfold to become one and the same. And I think this is a kind of logic that quickly becomes illogical. Um, lock people in a crowded cage during a communicable disease pandemic for not physical distancing, where they will not be able to physical distancing. This is not public health policy that's <laughs> going to be effective. Um, and I think the default for the use of the criminal justice system and police as a legitimate actor in the response to this community health crisis is what needs to be put into question. Um, and it's what needs to be undone. The police and the criminal justice system are fundamentally institutions that are not designed to handle or manage health crises. In fact, they're only going to drive them to be worse. So we've seen this with the criminalization of HIV. It's a prime example. Unlike effective HIV prevention approaches, which emphasize community behavior change, policing discourages testing, drives people away from healthcare. And while many people around the world or many countries around the world have reduced HIV transmission, Canada's HIV transmission continue to be on the rise and police have only created an ongoing context of, of fear and uncertainty for the 65,000 people who live with the virus in the country. So it's not an effective approach and it's fundamentally the wrong institution to handle this crisis. Thanks, Alex. Um, a minute ago, it was mentioned uh, about uh, these, these snitch lines or COVID-19 reporting lines that have emerged and, and your project started to track these as well. Could you, could you maybe share a little bit more about how these uh, snitch lines relate to, to the broader context of enforcement? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jamie. Um, so yeah, police began relying early on in the crisis um, on people reporting on each other. Um, and they began publicizing non-compliance lines to get people to affect essentially crowdsource policing to help in the process of enforcement. Um, and it, for us, it was really through talking with uh, sex worker rights activists that we learned the important role of snitch lines. Um, as there are certain communities who are always targets outside of the pandemic of community forms of snitching and reporting, uh, such as homeless people and sex workers. Um, and we saw this in Quebec City, a brothel was shut down um, during the pandemic and people who worked there were ticketed under the Public Health Act in Quebec uh, for over $1,500 for being alleged to not physically distance because they were snitched on. So this was because of a reporting not of non-compliance. 
Um, in some cities, there's been billboards encouraging people to snitch. Um, and so we knew that the rise of snitching was a really important for force in relation to um, enforcement. Um, and we needed to start accounting for this factor. So we developed a map on these, which is available on our website as well. Yeah, and the, um, the snitch line phenomenon is something that uh, we hope will be uh, examined uh, further in future research, which is you know a, a major reason that we, we kind of started tracking them because you know for us it raises uh, a ton of questions that I don't think as uh, criminologists we we have uh, very well developed answers to. So for instance, you know why even just why do people uh, snitch in these particular cases? Is it out of a sense of uh, civic duty? Uh, is it because they're looking for ways to uh, add some certainty to their uh, lives? Like what is the exact um, the different motivations? And I think um, we also have to kind of ask why have so many governments uh, launched these formal snitch lines? You know, we've, once we started tracking it, we found over uh, 30 of these initiatives across Canada, most of them in Southern Ontario. Uh, and, you know, one hypothesis is that um, police want the extra intel, which, you know, is certainly uh, seems to be the case in places like Edmonton, where uh, the police are actually using geolocated snitch line calls to orient hotspot policing. So just kind of mobilizing more police resources to the places that are generating the most uh, calls. Uh, and of course, another, you know, another hypothesis though, is that, you know, when we looked at other places, we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of police agencies concerned about the overwhelming influx in non-serious uh, 911 calls related to COVID non-compliance that they're getting. And so this kind of raises uh, some questions about what's actually driving it, because it could very well be that um, many governments launch these lines to redirect unwanted traffic away from 911, which might suggest that it's actually being driven more by everyday people uh, wanting to call these things in uh, than governments asking them to report. So I think you know, these are the types of questions that uh, we think will be really important to uh, examine in the coming uh, months and years as we try to make sense of all of this. And I hope that uh, our project and the data that we've uh, made available um, will help people do that. Really interesting. And I think that some, some recent events in Toronto are sort of related to this theme. O over the weekend, Twitter blew up with photos of crowds at Trinity Bellwoods Park uh, of people not adhering to social distancing measures, including, including the mayor, John Tory. Uh, I've seen a few takes on this in, in the news. Uh, so for the Toronto Star, Sri Pradkar noted that mostly white COVID idiots at Trinity Bellwoods think the rules don't apply to them. They're right. In the, in the Globe and Mail, Haley Montgomery and Jesse Wilms uh, said, don't blame those who gather in parks, blame the city for not having enough public space. In response to these events, the city of Toronto ramped up visible enforcement presence and promised to strictly enforce bylaws around social distancing. So I'm wondering, what's your take on this situation and how could Canadian cities do a, a better job at encouraging responsible behavior? Yeah, thanks. Um, it was certainly a troubling, uh, image to see. And I think there's probably some truth to uh, all of the different, um, the different takes that you mentioned. Um, and again, I'm not going to pretend like I have the answers to this, but the big question for me in uh, kind of reacting to it would be how can we avoid this from happening again in the future as we continue to, to manage the situation. And I think, you know, a lot of people uh, on social media have tried to take to what we might call pandemic shaming. Uh, in response to this particular event, and, and maybe, maybe that's going to be effective. I have no idea. Um, but I certainly don't think that the, the answer would be a return to uh, enforcement via 
uh, fines and arrests just because of this uh, one incident in the park. I think, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a real retreat away from uh, fining enforcement by police and bylaw, including in Toronto, in New York City, uh, and a number of other places across Canada. And I, I would hope that uh, it would stay that way. Because, I mean, for us, um, this is basically not fundamentally a criminal justice uh, problem, uh, at least in the case of Trinity Bellwoods Park incident, it seems to be primarily an education messaging problem, perhaps uh, also a privilege problem um, that largely uh, falls in the hands of our uh, government's leaders to effectively uh, solve. And I think solving it is going to require some uh, more imagination beyond just let's launch a bunch of new snitch lines and boost the presence of police and parks and uh, other public spaces. Uh, for me, that uh, it's hard to imagine how that uh, would be a, a sustainable and effective solution. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And um, policing is not an equal opportunity institution. And I think Sri Parkar's response highlights this well. I mean, patterns of enforcement are racialized. Um, and so of course, police were not in a park frequented primarily by white people. Um, through our ticketing or through our tracking, we've uh, seen multiple instances where people of color have been the targets of COVID-19 enforcement. In Ottawa, a bylaw officer punched a black man in the face because he refused to give his name um, while being asked to leave a public park that was apparently closed. The man was with his daughter and said that the enforcement officer singled him out in a park full of others. Also in Ottawa, two Syrian refugees um, were ticketed while being in the family with their families in parks having picnics um, and, and ticketed $880. Um, and we've seen other forms of this across the country. Um, and at the same time, I think also I agree with Alex. I mean, much of the response to shaming people in Trinity Bellwoods reminds me of the phenomenon of snitch lines. And I think, um, what that effectively does is it individualizes the response and deflects from a deflects from the lack of preparedness, education, and testing on behalf of the government to actually handle this crisis effectively. Thanks, Alex. So uh, all of these themes that we've been discussing, you've you've published in a, in a series of reports, and and your enforcement reports have gotten quite a bit of attention. Um, could you? Tell us what, uh, what your goals were in producing these reports and uh, what some of your key findings were. Yeah, um, so since we started the project uh, beginning of April, April 4th, and since then we've released two of what we call enforcement reports. Uh, the first looking at the available data um, in our project between April 4th and, uh, which is basically when police intervention related to COVID-19 uh, started in Canada and April 15th. And then the second one looks at the data between April 4th and May 1st. Um, so we started producing these uh, reports, which are both uh, available on the website uh, as, a, as a way to analyze kind of macro level trends across the country and draw attention to um, particular enforcement related incidents that we wanted to make people uh, aware of. So in the reports, we took stock of uh, available uh, information in the database, looking at things like which provinces and cities were using police the most uh, what kinds of actions were they uh, taking in response to COVID-related incidents? Uh, how many people have been uh, uh, given tickets for things like failing physical distance and also uh, trying to determine uh, whether any evidence of unequal patterns of enforcement uh, had begun to emerge, such as poor Black uh, and Indigenous people being targeted more than other groups, something that we 
um, you know, no happens in other areas of policing like street checks. Uh, but so far, this last one has uh, been difficult to fully assess just due to the limits of our uh, data, but uh, we're still working. Yeah, and so far we've uh, counted over 4,500 people facing fines across the country. Uh, approximately 30 people are facing criminal charges and fines have totaled uh, upwards of $5.8 million. Um, and so um, one of the things for about the enforcement reports, I think that's been important for us is that our project is, is public facing uh, first and foremost, and that means it's meant for people. It's a form of public criminology. Um, many people have and communities have been using the site as a public service. Um, we presented findings to groups of sex workers, to shelter workers, to drug users rights activists, um, and to communities uh, so they can use the knowledge uh, that we've kind of aggregated together uh, to help understand this new rise in pandemic police power as a way to protect their own communities. Um, Someone posted one of our enforcement reports in a store window in downtown Toronto. Uh, journalists have been using the site regularly as a source. And it's, uh, for me, it's interesting because I was talking to my colleague, Kira Brackenroach, who's in Ireland. Um, and she was telling me that in Ireland, uh, the public police oversight body is doing what we're doing. Uh, they're collecting numbers and locations of new COVID enforcement measures. And for, for us, I think it's fascinating that this brand new form of police power, which is unprecedented in our lifetime, uh, has been enacted with little or no oversight. Um, there's no interest in terms of documenting what's going on, as far as we know. Um, and so uh, that's where our project comes in. And I think that's where our project has been helpful. It's to help inform, help scrutinize, and hopefully help eventually helpful to account what's been happening. And why do you think that this work has resonated with so many people? You sort of allude to it, but could you, could you expand a little bit? Uh, well, yeah, the project has really resonated with people because I think people are at a point where they don't want more surveillance and policing in their daily lives. And that's reached kind of a crisis point. Um, but we've had politicians reach out to us. Um, we've been engaging very actively with the media on a regular basis and uh, journalists have used our, our site regularly as a source. We've also written an op-ed um, about the problem of fines specifically in Montreal and uh, Quebec, uh, where that's been the biggest problem. And for us, it's been really helpful and for other communities, it's been really helpful to document in kind of near real time, this new form of enforcement to help kind of inform an ongoing conversation of what's actually happening um, and for example, in Ottawa, due to lots of public scrutiny, um, the city has now reversed the use of enforcement um, and that many people have pushed for this to happen. And I think having a source uh, to call upon really helped that collective work push move it forward. That's great. So uh, like a real impact that you that you can see. Um, before we close it up, uh, what's what's next for the map? Uh, we have a few next steps for the project. We're uh, going to continue what we're doing. So we're going to continue tracking the, the, uh, the forms of enforcement so pe people can continue to check our website at policingthepandemic.ca. Um, we're going to continue releasing enforcement reports. Um, and uh, we're also developing a timeline of uh, laws and enforcement measures that uh, Nicholas 
Behuit at the at U of T, a law student there has been helping us with. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. Um, and Alex, we have some other stuff that Alex can talk about. Yeah, the, the, other, the other really big one is that, um, and this will hopefully come soon, but at the moment, if you go to the website, we basically have the interactive uh, map of geolocated police enforcement actions and snitch lines, then the searchable database as well. Uh, but we would also like to make the uh, data available in raw format. Uh, so in doing this, you know, we'd also like to uh, release several other uh, data points that we've been uh, collecting, like the size of the uh, fine, uh, the known latitude, longitude coordinates, the more precise uh, incident descriptions, which are all kinds of things that we've been collecting behind the scenes, but not yet released. Um, so we'd like to compile all of this into a file that we can just uh, update along with the map and database that people can directly download um, with a kind of short description of the methodology, the limitations of the data, uh, an overview of the different variables, and um, we'll hopefully have that out soon. Basically, we're just having somebody uh, triple check it uh, with the kind of amazing help of uh, Emily Simmons at the University of Ottawa, who's kind of very carefully going through everything and making sure we didn't make uh, any mistakes. Uh, we're doing a bit of cleaning to it, but we hope in the next couple of weeks that um, all of that data will be directly downloadable for people to uh, do what they want with. Awesome. So uh, just one more time, I'd love to, to thank uh, Alex Luscombe and Alexander McClelland um, for, for joining us to tell, uh, to tell us a little bit more about the Policing the Pandemic project. Um, I think there's gonna be a link uh, below, but uh, you can check out their work at policingthepandemic.ca. Uh, so, so thanks again uh, to both of you. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, thanks. Jamie. Thank thanks, you. Marcus. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Jamie.